Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Moorhead, and today... I'm privileged to have as my guest, David Feltmate. We finally connected and were able to pull this together. He is Associate Professor of Sociology at Auburn University at Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, we're gonna be discussing his book today, the research that went into Drawn to the Gods, Religion and Humor in the Simpsons, South Park and Family Guy. David, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, John. Uh, I in- discovered your book. Uh, well, w- there's a couple of connections that we have. Uh, you did your PhD under Doug Cowan, yeah. and uh, he and I have some yes, I did. connections going back, given uh, uh, my work in new religious movements uh, in the past and also yes. in pop culture. And uh, I was doing some research mm-hmm. um, in uh, Hindu reactions to the, the character of Apu in The Simpsons. And in my, my Google yes. research, I came across uh, your book and the chapter and that. So that's how we kind of connected the dots mm-hmm. here and how we got to this point today. So we're going to talk about that and, and some other things as we go along. But first of all, I'd like to find out, how did you come to identify religion and, and satire, religion and pop culture as a personal and academic passion for yourself? Um <sighs> I mean, ever since I was an undergrad, I was interested in religion and pop culture. I went to St. Thomas University uh, for my undergraduate in Fredericton, New Brunswick, back in my home country of Canada. And I was fortunate enough to be mentored by a man named Tom Parkhill, or Dr. Thomas Parkhill, who studied um, Hinduism and Native American religions. A new religious movement. He was the guy that did everything in that department that wasn't Christianity. And Tom was a fantastic mentor. Um, I try to be half the mentor that he was to my own undergraduates, because what he did for me was he taught me how to use the library and then said, go to the library and go learn something. And I was always a huge fan of heavy metal music. And I thought, well, this is the greatest music in the world, as only a 19-year-old boy can. And so I went to the library, and I got every book on heavy metal out. So I got both of them and started reading them. And in there, in both of those books, one of them is uh, Dina Weinstein's heavy, um, Heavy Metal. It was called Heavy Metal Cultural Sociology. At the time, if you get it now, it's in a second edition. It's called Heavy Metal, The Music and Its Culture. And the other one was called uh, Running with the Devil by Robert Walser. And as a diehard Van Halen fan, I knew right away, I was like, oh, this is a book about Van Halen. <laughs> because it's the first track on the first Van Halen album. But what was really useful for me as a young scholar of religion is in reading both of those, they both made explicit connections between heavy metal music and religion and religious culture. Uh, Weinstein took concert experience and said, this is the closest thing 
the, the, the concerts were the closest things she'd ever seen to what Durkheim and Eliade were discussing. And I'd read some Durkheim and I'd read some Eliade at that point and I went, oh, okay, so here's a connection. And Walser was making explicit connections to the way that heavy metal was engaged in this kind of cultural pastiche, borrowing from all sorts of different uh, religious and esoteric traditions, uh, really drawing on sort of like Iron Maiden's seventh son of a seventh son. And the repurposing of um, European mythologies in, in lyrical and visual content. And so I started just plumbing this resource because for me it was an excuse to sit down listen to the music i love to listen to read about the stuff i love to read about and pull it into the religious studies work that i was doing in a way that you know couldn't do it in other circumstances right where somebody would say well it's very nice that you're interested in this but why don't you write about this 19th century protestant reformer that i'm interested in and i just at that point, I, I couldn't care as much as I cared about heavy metal. And, you know, I went on, I did my master's degree at Wilfrid Laurier University, and my wife at the time, um, she was doing her master's in speech-language pathology at Dalhousie University in Halifax. So I started adjuncting at St. Mary's University teaching their religion and pop culture class. And what I found, and this is the long way into the connection to the book, is all of the students in the room, I was trying to give them this broad range of topics. And what somebody else who was teaching it at the time, um, Nancy Earhart, she said, you know, we try to do sort of just like a very bare bones crash course introduction to world religion. So like we want a day talking about Christianity and then like Christianity and popular culture and this sort of thing. And I found out of a class of about 65 students, I would always have three to five students who were really connected every day, right? And then maybe two or three students depending on the topic. So I was, you know, when I was teaching Hinduism, for example, I tried to bring in the way that the Beatles went to India and um, connected with oh, transcendental meditation. And then eventually, um, you know, George Harrison goes on to join ISKCON, uh, showing how they were incorporating those ideas into their music. And, you know, this is just one of the ways that you might have met it. Because I was like, well, who hasn't heard of the Beatles? I get if you haven't heard of some of the obscure bands that I like, but if you haven't heard of the Beatles, um, in my mind at the time, it was like, where have you been? But each class, I would only have four or five people until I started repeating jokes from The Simpsons, which at the time, uh, there was a Canadian comedian named Brett Butt, and he said, you know, with a good cable package, you can get three hours of The Simpsons a day in Canada. And I, I always rem remember that because he was right. I could watch, sit down and watch three hours of the Simpsons a day, um, starting at about five o'clock at night and going until about 11 at night, just by flipping different channels. So this stuff, family guy was widely accessible. South park was widely accessible. And I would just repeat jokes and the students understood those jokes. And 
I would sit there and I'd say, you guys don't know anything about these religious traditions, right? When I was teaching you and asking you basic questions about these religious traditions, you didn't know or understand them, but you knew to laugh at these jokes. So what's going on? What did you learn from the sort of passively taking in, just watching TV? What have you learned? How did they present the material? Um, what does this presentation and the way that it is presented, how is that putting forward a particular worldview? And what are the consequences of accepting that worldview if you were to accept it? Uh, I know you did a lot of preparation for the research for the writing of this book. And it, mm -hmm. how many hours of cartoon watching did you have to put in? And one of the things that I found uh, surprising about the book was you, you mentioned how much religion comes up you discovered as a part of this viewing process. Can you go through some of that? Okay, so what I did, hours-wise, I can't give you a number. Um, Cowan used to say that I could quote The Simpsons chapter and verse. My dissertation was just on The Simpsons. Uh, to turn it into a book, I expanded it to include South Park and Family Guy. Um, I ended the research at the end of the 2015-2016 seasons, I want to say. At the time... That was over a thousand total episodes between the three series, each one averaging about 22 minutes long once you bring them down, um, take out the editing for commercials. Um, but of course, I mean, some of those episodes I watched dozens of times. Um, so what I would do is I started off with a very, you know, I have a definition of religion in the book, um, which is a very broad definition of religion. It, it's, if people are familiar with this podcast, they're familiar with Doug Cowan. Uh, Doug likes to use William James's definition of religion from the third essay in the varieties of religious experience that religion is the belief that there is an unseen order and that our, um, ultimate good relies on harmoniously adjusting there too. Yeah, I, I've been through this with Doug before. And mine is a modified version of that because being trained as a sociologist, I don't think belief is sufficient. I think you need institutions around um, a belief in order to transmit it, to protect it, to preserve it, to um, mobilize people. Right. So mm -hmm. part of, you know, you and I both work in new religious movements. And one of the things that I try to tell my students early on is that the difference between a crazy person and a religious prophet is often the way that the people around them view them. Sometimes if you don't believe the ideas, they always sound crazy. Mm -hmm. Um. But if you do buy into the belief and you buy into the community and you start acting in accordance with the beliefs, and this is being reinforced in numerous ways and your life is able to progress, then those institutions start to reinforce and reaffirm the beliefs that you have. So I don't think it's sufficient just to have a belief. I think you need that entire social support network. Now, that being said, I was 
also, I'm also well aware that definitions of religion that can be very broad um, can be so broad that some people go, well, that means that everything is in there, like the military or, um, you know, I live in the South and, and one of my running jokes is that Jesus does really well for himself here in Alabama, but if he could throw a touchdown for the tide, we'd never get rid of him. Um, <laughs> And that's because, you know, when I moved to Montgomery from Canada, started going to churches and Montgomery, you know, according to a 2013 poll run by Gallup, and eh, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some movement in the numbers and the rankings, but I would still say it's pretty high. It was ranked the second most religious city in the United States after Provo, Utah, with wow. about 63% of people claiming to attend and believe strongly in the Bible and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's 200,000 people and about a thousand churches here in town. It, it's a very sort of religious city, but where I was going with this is if you look at people's cars, there are Auburn university and Alabama and university of Alabama license plates everywhere. And the little decals of the football team and even in church, people in their Sunday finest are still wearing right over their heart a little pin of their team. Or uh, it's the only place where I've ever been where people have an entire wardrobe of orange and blue because they're Auburn fans. <laughs> and I, I said, you know, people are displaying for other people things that they want you to know about them. And these people who claim Christian identity, and I have no reason to doubt that they aren't Christians, right? So they're Christians, as far as I'm concerned. But the first thing they want a stranger to see about them is their football team. Mm. This is what they're advertising. Right. This is what they're showing to the world. And, you know, I think that there's something really important about that. When the Iron Bowl happens, which for people who were in my shoes, which means you don't follow college football and couldn't care less. It is the game of the year where the University of Alabama and Auburn play each other. Um, my non-football watching friends and I joke that it's the best time to go shopping anywhere in town because the stores are completely empty. You know, everybody, it seems, is together with family watching the football game. Now, that can... You know, for somebody who has, who's looking at religion, religious activity, there's a heck of a lot there to work with. Mm -hmm. So before I go and just jump into like, hey, you know, it is a religion or it isn't because I don't have all the data that I would want to defend that assertion. Um, but you could use my definition of religion and make a case for that. So when I was watching these shows, I was aware of that, but I was also aware that there is a common perception. Um, you know, I'm teaching world religions right now at Auburn University at Montgomery. And so I have, I'm using the, the Stephen Prothrow Religion Matters book. And it covers, you know, uh, let's see, Hinduism. And then there's a chapter on Buddhism and Sikhism and Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Taoism, Confucianism, Native American religions, with an emphasis on Navajo and atheism, right? So these are things that people commonly associate 
with religion. So I started watching the episodes with these sorts of things in mind. And I was looking for either visual references or spoken references to religion in some ways. And what I found is the vast majority, um, let me just grab the book here because this is where the numbers are. I think it's on page four. Yeah, no, it's on page one. There you go. More than 95% of Simpsons episodes in the sample, which is over 500 episodes, 84% uh, of Family Guy episodes, around 250 episodes, and about 78% of South Park episodes, again, around 250 episodes, uh, contained explicit references to religion if defined within those parameters. Uh, I was also using things like spirituality, that amorphous term, but that has given rise to things like um, to use uh, a very fuzzy category, things like new age, religious beliefs and practice, and especially the rise of like the new age bookstore where you can go in and you can get things on tarot or you can get things on Wicca or astral projection and um, by all kinds like crystals or herbs, teas, whatever to use. And that framework then, either what people might consider major world religions or uh, new religious movements or uh, Native American religious practice and spirituality. Once you take those broad categories, lump them together, that stuff appears in those episodes. So that's what I did. I sat down, I watched them. I watched them with uh, closed captioning on. The minute I saw a reference, so I was never just watching the episode on TV. I would record them. Then I would rewind. I would make sure that I had all of the dialogue directly correct. Um, so, you know, I still have the spreadsheets here on my computer of all of this data. And then I, then I just categorized it. Um, like if it's a reference to Christianity, so in The Simpsons, Ned Flanders, anytime Ned is acting as a Christian, it just got labeled as Christianity. And then after that, I, w I took all of the data and I went back and I said, okay, well, what are they doing most often? How are they using these jokes? And that's where the analysis came in. That sounds like a, a lot of television viewing and uh, a lot of close attention paid to these episodes, but you do what you got to do for the research. It's there are worse there are worse things to study and I really enjoy the shows although I've got to admit in the last couple of years I just haven't sat down to watch them because I'm my mind is like okay I'm done with that for now <laughs> I catch an episode every now and then I enjoy it but those habits of watching are still there all the time so. I mean, my eye catches things like, I remember one, There, there's an episode where Bart gets left at home in The Simpsons and the rest of the family goes to Machu Picchu and he's like, days are awesome and nights are scary. And one point in the night, he's just sort of huddled there with like a plastic sword in one hand and a cross in the other. And I went, boom, there's your religion reference for that episode. Sometimes they fly by just that fast. Yeah. And so- For those who are, are watching- listening 
you miss out on the, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, obviously you're getting extra special content today. You're getting the, my granddaughter coming earlier in the background. I have my cat as the co-host and uh, my border collie at my feet. So uh, you're missing out if you're just on the audio, but thank you everybody for bearing with me, including my guests today. Uh, why is a, are cartoons designed for entertainment? They're not religious in orientation. Why are they incorporating so many uh, religious references? Is it that much? And the way they're doing it, I mean, it's not like they're, they're reverently treating the material for people who uh, are you know, have religion as an important component of, right. of their daily lives. So what's going on here? What's the dynamic? So I'm going to talk about the three series that I focused on, because the way that I take a look at any television production or a film is I see them as a product of a group of people. And you, you've got to be aware of sort of the dynamics of each show. So for example, on South Park, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, especially Trey Parker, who writes most of the episodes now, um, and is sort of the leading vision in that on that side, they have far more control over the content of an individual episode than say, um, Matt Groening, who's the creator of The Simpsons, because there's an entire team of writers for The Simpsons. There's a writer's room. They go in, they workshop ideas, the different uh, voice and character actors. And, you know, this whole thing started with a discussion of Apu, whom Harry Shearer has, has now said he's not, or sorry, not Harry Shearer, Hank Azaria. What am I saying? Hank Azaria said he's not going to voice him anymore as he has learned more about the way that Apu has been received uh, that he was unaware of. And so that dynamic is coming in there as well. And then um, you've got artists who are drawing the way the characters look um, and they're interpreting voices, turning the, what people are saying into those bodies that you see because the episodes are recorded first and then drawn. So it's a team job to create this vision. It is not the work of any one individual genius. And as a sociologist, I think that's really important because whenever you watch a program, then everything that comes out of a character's mouth, uh, everything that the camera shows you, somebody sat there and saw it and went, yeah, that's what we want to put on the TV. That's what we want to put on there. Um, uh, you know, I remember um, sitting down one time and watching the Lord of the Rings uh, extended editions. And Peter Jackson was talking about how he took, you know, he shot the entire movie and then just put this like iridescent glow into the background. Uh, on a lot of the shots to make it look more fantastical. And I thought, you know what? He was making this film, which for me, you know, I love the, the Lord of the Rings films in part because uh, I grew up reading fantasy novels and I love them and I love playing fantasy video games. And for me, the Lord of the Rings was finally the time where I, I saw this really coming to film. You know, CGI had finally caught up with the imagination. And that was part of the way that he did it, is he saw the, 
the camera captured something and then another layer was added. And whenever you're looking at a TV show, I think it's really important to go, you know what, somebody somewhere wrote a line. It might not be the line that comes out of the character's mouth because the character might be ad-libbing in the moment, but let's, the actor might be ad-libbing in the moment, but let's just say the actor isn't. So somebody writes a line, somebody else reads over the draft of the script and goes, yeah, okay, this is, this is pretty good, but they might go, but here's a note on this line, maybe it should be better, right? So that's somebody else giving you correction. And then the person goes, oh, okay, I'll correct it. They rewrite the line. So that's two people putting some input into what this character is saying. Then the actor might go over and give the line who knows how many different ways. Well, that's another layer of somebody interpreting the line. And then somebody makes a decision on which version of the line they're going to use for the final piece. And then uh, with, in this case, and along the lines of what Jackson was doing, but an animator and an animation director, they listen to, you know, they've storyboarded things and they listen to the audio and they go, oh, I think that the character should be doing this in this situation when they say these lines. And then it comes back and people watch this sort of mocked up version and they go, oh, we like this version, but maybe we should re-record the voice or maybe they should change it. So by the end of the whole thing, it's a group product. So if it's a group product as a sociologist, I go, I say to myself, this has to be the product of a cultural worldview that is shared among the people that is making this product. In the United States, whether you consider yourself religious or not, you cannot escape the presence of religion. And so I think religion shows up in these shows because they are programs that there's 22 episodes a season, typically, at least with The Simpsons and Family Guy. South Park has a bit shorter run. They need to fill that time with content. And people are just aware of things that are going on all around them all the time. So you and I are talking about religion. When I was presenting this at my university, a colleague of mine in political science asked me, well, do you think religion is in there as much as politics? I said, I didn't watch this for the politics. I can't answer you that question. But I can definitely point to episodes that are really focused on politics and the way that American democracy either works or doesn't. And uh, there are all kinds of commentaries on capitalism and uh, working class drinking cultures. And so what, you know, it's not just a religion show, but because it's trying to capture a snapshot of American life, and all three of these shows are snapshots of contemporary United States you know, I'm using American there as people have pointed out to me plenty of times, you know, America is more than just the United States and they're right. But for the sake of this discussion, American equals the United States. I say that in the book as well. In American culture, religion sort of pervades into everything. And frankly, anywhere that people take religion seriously, it crisscrosses into other areas of life but i would also say that so do a lot of other things you know anywhere that people take politics seriously it crisscrosses into other areas of life anywhere that people take family seriously it crisscrosses into other areas of life uh, economics crosses into all different aspects of life so 
we need to divide things up intellectually to be able to make sense and go deep into some topic, but that doesn't mean that these other factors are not there with it. So religion shows up in these shows because religion is important to people, both their own religious practice and the religious practices of other people around them as we try to shape the world into something that, you know, uh, I'm going to appeal to the better natures of human beings. People are trying to shape it towards something that they think is better. Even if, you know, you're better, I look at it and go, oh, no, no, I don't want anything to do with that, right? Um, for the sake of, of assuming people are honest actors, which, you know, sometimes is a very bad assumption. I'm just going to say that that's part of what they're doing, right? And that creates an opportunity for humor and satire when people are acting or saying things or doing things in a way that you either consider stupid or that they say one thing and then their actions contradict that behavior. So that kind of folly um, hopefully exposes the cracks in the logic of the world that people are putting forward. And that's what these shows really thrive on. That's where the satirization come, you know, sort of comes out of. Let's discuss a little bit about the different ways in which these uh, programs are, are dealing with different religious traditions. Um, rather sure. than, just, you know, a lot of people in a given religious tradition, you know, though, I don't know how many times I've heard Christians complain about the way the Simpsons treats, uh, you know, Christians. And mm -hmm. I, I'm more familiar now with the way in which uh, Hindus have reacted to it, which is various. It's not just negative. I've seen some also that, that thought it was positive that he was there. But let's contrast mm -hmm. that. Can you talk a little bit about how the uh, Hinduism is treated and then how Christianity is treated by way of contrast and why the different ways in which those two religious traditions are, are treated in the animation? Okay, so if we're going to talk about Hinduism, we're really talking about The Simpsons because okay. it almost never shows up in South Park and Family Guy. I'm maybe a, a throwaway joke here or there. Um, I'm thinking of one episode of Family Guy where Peter goes and he sees a Hindu guru who's got a talit, the dot on his forehead, and he tackles him. And he's like, "No, there was a, somebody was pointing a sniper rifle at your forehead, right?" So that's like the the laser scope. That's what he interpreted it as. Um, but it does not have a consistent represent uh, character who gets to be by default sort of an ambassador or representation, uh, the way that The Simpsons does with a poo. Um, not only that, I mean, South, South Park is different in this regard, but a lot of the time, like the Simpsons are, you know, they, they attend church. At different points, you could argue that, and I do, I argue that, you know, Marge should be seen as Christian, whereas Homer jumps from one religion to another. We don't quite know where Bart sits. Lisa converts to Buddhism. Um but they have the Flanders family as a representation of evangelicals. And in South Park, certainly, you know, the Marshes, the Cartmans, they'll show up in church. They also, each show also has Jewish characters. Um, and 
especially South Park, who has Kyle there as the, the main representation of Judaism, or at least a, a spokesperson for a kind of Judaism. So the reason I'm bringing this up is what I argue in Drawn to the Gods is every program works in what I call a sort of concentric circles model. So you have this central group of traditions that, or, or yeah, I'm going to use the word traditions, that um, each show takes as being good and ideal, right? So in The Simpsons, it's spiritual seeking. Um, you could throw Buddhism in there, although I, I deal with that in the chapter on ethnicity and race. But it, it's this kind of open spiritual seeking, seeking your spiritual good without imposing on anybody else. And that could mean that you're seeking in a Christian church, you're seeking uh, through New Age or whatever, uh, pursuing Ju Judaism, pursuing Islam, whatever. And as long as you don't impose your religion on other people, right? So it's sort of that believe what you believe, but don't push your religious beliefs into my life. Uh, then The Simpsons is fine with it. Um, Family Guy early on kind of takes that approach, but becomes more hardline atheist uh, as the seasons progress. Certainly as Seth MacFarlane becomes far more recognized as a public atheist. And in South Park, it's human creativity that they really prize. And yeah, you need to watch the Imagination Land trilogy to really get, I think, I think that those three episodes there are probably the clearest statement that South Park's ever made about what they think is, uh, you know, the good that humans should be aspiring towards. So again, it's that as long as you don't impose on them. So from there, I, I then say, okay, so if this is the core, what makes other groups excluded? And some groups are excluded by race and ethnicity. Um, and Apu fits there. So the thing is, is that Apu, in many ways is kind of welcome in Springfield. He's kind of a novelty, uh, the way that the Simpsons approaches him, but you know, nobody is ever running a, a pogrom, pogrom against Apu for his Hinduism. Um, whenever Apu, or sorry, whenever like Ned Flanders comes in and is directly contrasted with a poo, Ned's the one who comes out looking cruel and harsh and bigoted. Um, a poo does not, but and so in the chapter where I, where I sort of lay this out, Native American religions in The Simpsons, South Park, Family Guy, they're really fascinating because there's no Native Americans actually shown practicing them. So the Native Americans get erased, and the and the white people get to take, um, on, you know, vision quests or Native American healing medicines. That's really sort of key in the depictions there. And then Buddhism again, right? When Lisa converts to Buddhism, there's no real representation of non-white, non-North Americans, unless 
you know, the Simpsons like go to China or something. So th this model of religions existing as things that people can appropriate and fit into their spirituality exists in the Simpsons in a way that his Hinduism as a practice that Indians have practiced for millennia that has become a part of the American religious landscape, especially in major cities, it doesn't get erased in a sea of, you know, I, I want to say whiteness. Uh, it doesn't get whitewashed, but even that's not quite fair in the sense that it is not presented as a set of ideas and practices that anybody can take on and adapt to their particular circumstances. It is rooted in the fact that this is a person from a place that is seen as different than the United States. So he's never completely in, but he's also not excluded, right? That racial element keeps it from becoming a, a sort of just faceless part of the United States religious landscape. Um, it still has a face. It has a face that, you know, most of the characters in The Simpsons are yellow, in part because Matt Groening wanted early on to mess with people's heads. He was like, look, if we make them this kind of fleshy white, you know, we say fleshy white, but th this white, whatever you want to call this, this hue that you and I are. He's like, if we make them yellow, people will think something's wrong with their TV and I want them to get up and start messing around with the rabbit ears. And for those of you who don't remember rabbit ears, The Simpsons is old. Um, we wanted people to get up and mess with their TV because he, he thought, hey, maybe the, something's wrong with this. But African-American characters, they're presented as black. Asian characters have distinctly Asian features. Namely, they tend to have narrower eyes and um, speak with accents. And Apu fits into that. You know, he's, his skin color is brown. And he speaks with this very thick uh, accent, which is part of, you know, Harry Kondablu, I'm paraphrasing here, but Kondablu, who made the video, The Problem with Apu, right? He made that documentary. He said, you know, it sounds like somebody doing a bad impression of my dad. So there's a generation of... Indian immigrants who came to the United States. And this is part of the exposure is they formed temples. Um, some of them went on to become massively successful as engineers and doctors. Um, others came over and they opened convenience stores. Um, people trying to live the best that they can, you know, in, in their circumstances. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, and like a poo is part of this story. It can become a stereotype because we have heard it from numerous people where he's, you know, he's got a PhD in computer science. He couldn't land a job in computer science here. So he started working at the local grocery store and eventually came to run it. And that's how he got to stay. So the presentation 
of Apu in one way is like you cannot erase these immigrants, which I personally think is a good thing in the sense that this tradition, if you're going to take it seriously, you cannot erase the people who have been who have a long family history of practicing it. Um, it's not just available for somebody to pick up like the Bhagavad Gita and read it and say, look, now I'm a Hindu and I know as much about Hinduism as people who practice it. Um, but at the same time, he does, he gets a family, but again, the family is never voiced by anybody except white actors who are also doing impressions of Indian accents. And even though he ends up having eight kids, which I think is also a stereotype uh, and cheap depiction of India's population and population boom, he, we don't see those kids grow up. We don't see those kids become regular characters that are dealing with um, a parent who grew up in one country, has come to another country, is trying to figure out how to navigate this. And meanwhile, the kids are trying to navigate their home and family life and their relationships with their families and their relationships with their friends who don't understand, who don't come from this, who might have, have taken on prejudices from their families. The Simpsons never fully incorporates a poo uh, and Hinduism as like, this is a good central thing, but they also don't say, you know what, this is not part of America. So that chapter, uh, chapter two, really looks at Native American religions, Buddhism, or sorry, Buddhism's in chapter one. So it looks at Native American religions, uh, Hinduism, and Judaism as these religions that ethnic identity either gets erased and incorporated or the ethnic identity stops people from being fully incorporated into their vision of what good religion is in the U.S. Christians are the most satirized group in all three shows, not surprisingly, uh, in part because they're also the most common. Uh, this is a country that is populated by Christians heavily populated by Christians. And that means that more people are familiar with Christian ideas than anything else. I mean, jokes about Apu and Hinduism, I use the term ignorant familiarity in the book. And what that is, is it's the knowledge you need to work with a group without actually knowing much about them. Right, so you know better than to say to a group of Hindus, like, do you believe in Jesus? It's like Hindus, that, that's not a relevant question for them. But you may not know the finer points of Vaishnava cosmology, right, which I certainly don't. Being able to ask those questions now, Christians, on the other hand, have given people a lot more to work with. And where Christians get satirized in these programs is, first of all, they get criticized um, for stupidity, for believing stupid things. Um, things about God, things about Jesus, things about the Bible, uh, that the people who are making these shows think is dumb. 
trying to come up with a whole bunch of, you know, it's like all of a sudden all these jokes are flooding into my right, head. Right, right. right. And what they're doing there is they're exposing what they see as foolish behavior. So you take something like biblical literalism, people who think that the Bible is literally the word of God and that it's always relevant. And uh, there's one episode where Homer becomes a missionary and he just randomly opens up the Bible and I'm paraphrasing again because I didn't, I don't have it directly here. It's correct. It's quoted correctly in the book, but he quotes from one of the, as he says, Psalms, one of the Psalms where, you know, God will smash the skulls of your enemies and you will drink the blood there. And he goes, it's as true today as it was when it was written. And the people are looking at him like, this, this makes no sense. This is irrelevant. But that approach to the Bible, they often lampoon in all three shows, right? So what I argue is part of the reason why this is presented as stupid behavior that people should care about, because people do all kinds of stuff that, you might consider stupid that I might consider stupid that any of the listeners might consider stupid, but that we consider harmless and not worth actually engaging people on. Um, you know, maybe somebody has, has a morning routine and they get into the office and they're like, Oh, my morning routine was thrown off. And now, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to work today. And you might just kind of roll your eyes and be like, yeah, give yourself a minute. You'll be able to, to be fine once you settle down. It's not until, so chapter um, three is about when Christians are stupid. But when the real key here is it becomes seen as dangerous when that stupidity is used as a reason to persecute people for not sharing your beliefs. Ned Flanders trying to take the Simpsons children and baptize them because that's the proof that Homer and Marge are bad parents, that they didn't baptize their, their kids and they're not leading them properly. They certainly take swipes at um, South Park. Okay, South Park takes a, um, has a really deep episode on the way that um, conversion therapy for, uh, right, conversion therapy camp leads um, young gay kids to kill themselves, right? So there's a couple of kids that commit suicide in that episode because they can't live up to what the Christian leaders there are telling them that God will make them straight. And they're like, I can't. And then they, you know, one hangs himself and another one shoots himself in the head and uh, another one's going to jump off a bridge and butter stops them. Those episodes exist explicitly as criticisms of behaviors that Christians have done in the political arena and the social arena um, that these different programs say, you know, this is where they become real threats. They're dangerous to other people in our society. People will kill themselves over uh, or because of what these groups teach. Families will get torn apart because of what these groups teach. Um, 
you radically change and destroy cultures, which is what, you know, whenever they're criticizing missionaries is often one of the, the key traits there. For them, that, that's the line that they see Christians crossing now up who never gets put into that, at least in the sample that I have. Uh, he's never going out there and trying to force people to change, to fit his view of the world. So that's why they get classified in different ways. And uh, the best thing I can tell you to do if you want more details is read the book. And if you don't want to read the book, at least buy the book so I get some royalties. Exactly. Of course, we'll include uh, the uh, the link to the, the book in the, the podcast description. So hopefully folks will not take this podcast as the end all be all of understanding the subject matter. It's a great book. But to, no. to close out our, our time together, I, I know um, it's not your job to, to try and make the world a better place, but we like to try and contribute to that as best we can through the podcast, rather than getting upset at the satire. If you're in a given religious tradition, and these cartoons just tick you off because of the way they treat your religious tradition. What, what positively can religious adherents take away from through the satire by way of critique of their tradition? How can we, we look at this and say, look at my tradition and say, hey, you know, maybe I need to be a little more self-critical here. What were some positive takeaways? So I'll tell you, again, clearly I like to tell stories. Um, I showed the episode Christian Rock Hard, which is a, a South Park episode where Cartman forms a Christian rock band basically so that he can get a platinum album. And it turns out he can't get a platinum album because Christian, the Christian Association only awards um, gold frankincense and myrrh records. Right. So he can't go platinum, but he can go double myrrh. And anyway, so what he does is he takes popular songs, changes the word baby to Jesus, and ends up writing a whole bunch of stuff that sounds homoerotic. And, but it becomes like the best-selling Christian album out there. And partly what South Park is doing is they're making fun of the ways that these Christians who are leading the charge against same-sex uh, rights and acceptance. I mean, this is a 2005 episode too. Can't even see the homoeroticism in their own tradition, their own way. And I showed this to my mother and at the end of it, she said, well, because my dad is a Baptist pastor and mom sort of went along with it. She's Anglican. And now they're both Anglican and their mom's much happier. Mom won in the end. And she said, wow, they sure got us, didn't they? And it's the kind of thing where I think any time a group you belong to is criticized in popular culture, news, anywhere, where it's not somebody that's directly in your face being antagonistic, but the, th the great thing about a book or about a TV show or a film is, especially in our media environment today, you can consume it, you can read the book, watch the TV show, watch the film, etc., listen to the song, you can put it down, you can ask yourself, what do these people think? What do they think about me? Why 
would they think this about me or people like me? Is there good reason for them to think this way? And that might also mean, you know, if you've never heard of the examples that people bring up, right? So I think all the time about how I've grown in learning about Native American issues, right? The, this is one where I grew up next to the second largest reservation in the province of New Brunswick. But as a teenager, I never really thought about the issues that led the people on the reservation to see the world the way they did and my native classmates to see the world the way they did. I was really self-centered. And I've had to come to realize that they see the world differently in part because of the way that history brought them and their families to this moment. Um, and so their critique of the way that I live my life, sometimes good, sometimes for ill, comes out of that. And I have to be aware and think, you know, is there a good point to this? What is the point? Why would they think that? And it's coming to terms with, is it justified? And this is where one of the things that I do in the book is I often track the way that there are historical examples that generalize into the stereotypes that show up in the show. I think more of us need to become aware of those historical examples that can lead other people to see our behaviors, actions, ideas as different than the intent that we might put out there, right? Um, when I'm writing, when, when I wrote the book, I, you know, I always phrase it as you don't have to find this funny, but you need to understand why somebody else would. Um, if somebody else thinks your behavior is stupid, I mean, it may be just that they think your behavior is stupid. They see the world differently than you and you don't want to bother to change and yeah, okay. But if they see your behavior as dangerous, it might be worth asking why. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a, a long, hard look in the mirror. And, and the, the great thing about human beings is we can change our behavior. One of the things that I, students will say, you know, I'm sorry I did something or I said something in class. I said, don't say you're sorry, you're an adult. Just change your behavior, right? What's done is done. Change your behavior. That's how you show you've learned, how you show you've grown. Sometimes we need that criticism thrown in our face. It may come off as too harsh for some people, right? So, you know, being satirized is not for everybody. Some people might learn this way. Some people might start asking this way asking questions this way, other people will dismiss it. I mean, that's always the risk of putting an idea out in the world. So I think that the most positive thing we can take from this is try to understand why other people would see the world that way. Ask what proof do they have for their position? What things uh, in this case, happened in the world or continue to happen in the world repeatedly that would lead them to take the position that they do. Did I, was I aware of the consequences of these actions, right? Because sometimes we do things for all kinds of good reasons that have horrible results. If I have been part of creating a negative, horrible reaction in the world, 
I can't go back and change it. What could I do differently in the future? Do that. Yeah. Well, I think that these... and at any point, yeah, yeah. at any point, you, at any point you might go, you know, uh, I can see why they think it's different, but I'm going to hold, I'm going to stick to my guns and I'm going to hold to this position because it's more important to me that I hold to this position than that I change. I'm okay with this person getting hurt because I think this position is more important, right? Because sometimes that's also part of making thoughtful, critical decisions. Uh, sometimes life isn't easy. And this is what, this is why, um, you know, I love this question in part because this is why I'm an academic is I think that academics gives us the tools and the training to have these conversations and think deeply about how we're going to either act on our own or try to push groups that we're part of to, first of all, articulate why you think a position is better and then to be better. And you know, people are going to disagree and they're going to fight over those disagreements. But all too often, I think we disagree without understanding both people who disagree with us. And in turn, by not really understanding them, we don't really understand ourselves. That's basically where I go in the conclusion. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, a part of what we're trying to do here at Multi-Faith Matters is not only inform people, but help them uh, disagree better. Uh, I'm not into conflict resolution, but I like conflict management. How can we be, be more informed and more respectful yeah. through these disagreements over important issues in pop culture? So, I Yeah. And pop culture is a great place to discuss them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I discovered... Uh, Folks who may not know who who listen and watch the Multi-Faith Matters podcast, I've got a blog that I've had for years called mm -hmm. Theofantastique.com. And uh, yes. we've had, I've had some amazing discussions uh, over the years with people in a broad variety of religious traditions uh, where we talk about things through uh, the venue of pop culture that we love. So it's a, a tremendous resource, mm -hmm. as you know, for talking about these important things. And it, again, like I was saying earlier, these are groups of people that are, you know, they're trying to entertain, but part of what's entertaining is the fact that they are having these kinds of conversations. You know, even in something that seems as frivolous as a cartoon, really deep discussions, and The Simpsons is largely responsible for creating this whole genre of adult cartoons where we expect to be both entertained, but to have critiques that can become substantive and serious as people think about them and talk about them. So they are part and parcel of this conversation. And frankly, let's face it, even a poorly watched episode of The Simpsons is going to reach more people than I am. So yeah. Their voice is yeah. loud and out there. That's true. Well, David, uh, again, I appreciate uh, you know, making the time, and I'm glad that uh, my research in another area uh, caused me to, mm -hmm. to find your book. And again, uh, it's Drawn to the Gods, Religion and Humor, and the Simpsons, South Park, and Family Guy. And folks can look at the uh, there, there it is for those of you watching on YouTube. There it is. Um, yep. You'll find a link uh, in the program description, and I encourage everybody who wants to understand the subject matter in more depth. This is a serious issue uh, coming, again, out of entertainment and pop culture, and uh, mm -hmm. seek out the book. Uh, David, thank you for being a guest, and I look forward to us staying 
in touch and uh, keeping in touch with each, you know, each other's research and work over the, the course of the future. Absolutely, John. Thank you so much for having me on and for doing all the work that you do.